So we've got two values, trust and care. We like sure. to keep things simple. Yeah. We've got one motto, and that's be better. We've always got to be better. All of us, in everything that we do, no one's allowed to be complacent. It's not in our makeup. We just don't behave like that. We've got this mentality. I don't think that I'm good enough. I've got imposter syndrome anyway. And I think lots of people here have the, the same qualities. We don't actually think that we're anywhere near good enough. I think we don't think that we're as good as people think that we are. So we want to strive to be better and we'll probably never stop. It's, it's not what we are. Welcome to the Business Mastermind Podcast with business strategist, speaker and author, Gavin Preston. Tap into this meeting of minds between everyday business people on their journey to master business growth. Join them as they share strategies, insights and shortcuts to help you survive and thrive in business and life as you scale your business and achieve a bigger impact. Hi, Gavin here. Welcome to the Business Mastermind Podcast. It's episode 84. And today I sit down with Donald Moore, the chairman of Rollinson Knitwear in Manchester in the UK. He was formerly the managing director, now the chairman. He has sort of led the transformation from net assets of 80,000 through to 7 million current net assets. He shares his journey towards employee ownership, and towards becoming a B Corp, a Benefit Corp. And he also shares that actually looking after people and customers before profit has led to a lot more profit. You're going to enjoy this engaging, open, genuine, frank interview with Donald Moore of Rowlandson's Knitwear. Hello, welcome to the Business Mastermind Podcast. Gavin here for another episode. I have got the great pleasure of being uh, having ha- been shown round um, Rollison's Knitwear and sat down with the chairman, Donald. Uh, Donald, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure. So um, this, your business, the business that you've helped to shift and turn round is, is a bit different in a very good way. And for a start, you're employee owned, you're on a journey uh, to qualify to become a B Corp. Um, I'd just like to hear... Uh, and share your story that I've heard this morning and I've been had the privilege of being shown around. But I'd, I'd like to hear the story of what you found when you joined the business and therefore the need for some change and then the change you have sort of led and brought about. I suppose it was like a lot of family businesses and a lot of SMEs really in, in that they existed, uh, exist purely for the benefit of family. Or, or for shareholders, and often uh, that can be extreme, and it can lead to uh, greed, which um, can impact badly on the company, affects uh, morale and everything. And it's not always family that are the best people to be positioned no. uh, to grow a successful and enduring company. So, so I suppose in that sense, uh, we were no different. But in, in the beginning, because uh, we were a factory and making stuff, lots of the people working here were paid on the individual incentive. So the more they produce, the more they earn. And uh, that leads to greed. doesn't lead to good quality. Definitely doesn't lead to looking after the customer. So I suppose, and it's not unique, that uh, the business was uh, individually and collectively selfish. And uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like it in this business, and I don't like it generally, really. So uh, that's what uh, we we encountered. It was quite... um, Violent as well in the beginning, which might shock people. The business was <laughs> well the uh, the workforce. Yeah. So uh, um, especially uh, amongst the blokes. So maybe uh, they were they were doing a job which was they thought was like repetitive and boring. Um, and maybe they just had the time to, to uh, wind each other up. 
But in my first year here, 20 odd years ago, there were three fights and they involved like iron bars and headbutting. It wasn't like playground slapping stuff. So it was quite violent and wow. lots of the people wouldn't go into that department. Even managers of other departments wouldn't even go in. Yeah. So it was hostile. So I suppose that is extreme. Uh, it's a bit like uh, Life on Mars that I'd had, like, and had an accident and had gone back to like the 60s. And uh, and all these weird things were going on, which, which were like prevalent in in those days, you know, like uh, all the bad things that you might encounter. Really. So that could have been quite intimidating then, you know, when you walk into a culture and environment where there is iron bars being used on the shop floor in, in fights and stuff. Well, it wasn't um, <laughs> it wasn't doing particularly well actually, and uh, it could have easily gone bust. So when you're faced with something like that. Uh, it's probably easier. So I think my first rule was, um, and one that we've kept with since, was, uh, and we only had one rule in those days, and that's that you had to care. You had to care uh, for the company, uh, for, for each other, and uh, you had to care for the customer. Uh, but that ruled a lot of people out. So there was uh, the revolving door was going, but it was easy for some people to leave because if you headbutt someone, then you're not likely to keep your job, really. Um, funny that. <laughs> <laughs> funny that. Okay, so um, you started a journey towards employee ownership for the for the for Robinson. Yeah, we we didn't actually set off on that journey because we were so far removed. Uh, f- from that because of the greed uh, maybe that led us there but it wasn't the it wasn't the plan in the beginning the plan was to survive and survive through improving quality and looking after the customer and have a, a better environment trying to attract people because the working conditions were pretty bad and the atmosphere wasn't brilliant either so so for the first few years it was about survival and just trying to improve step by step just to bring us to somewhere near like an average company really the th- the thing that that led us to employee ownership were, were actually came out of a near disaster really so in in about 12 years ago during the banking crisis um i'd made some pretty big mistakes and and partly it's because i was trying to satisfy the uh, shareholder wealth, really. So, and I did some pretty stupid things. Um, and it seemed that it seems that like lots of people do that, so, that they want to follow growth for growth's sake and to grow easily and quickly. You sell more stuff cheaply. Yes. And... Um, Maybe that's all right, and maybe that's exciting, you know, to see the graph uh, go up and and things like that. But it's not really sustainable. And one of the best ways to grow quickly is to sell cheaper. So um, I'd also made some other big mistakes as well, like uh, a failed IT project, uh, which, which wasn't just a total waste of money. But customer satisfaction really suffered. Our service really suffered. So everyone can make mistakes, but I made too many in a short period of time at a period where uh, banks were going bust and the, right. and the bank that we were dealing with were going bust. And really, uh, the big impact for us was, was that the shareholders still still wanted massive amounts of money right and uh that's when it all changed because because uh we had to change otherwise we'd have gone bust right and we we were looking at cash um daily and in fact we still do that we do daily cash flow now and and uh we do really well but we do our routine is that we look at cash flow daily for 12 months forward all the time ongoing. So and you've got a rolling daily cash flow forecast from a 12-month basis. Yeah. Love that. It's just a brilliant discipline. It is, I agree. 
and uh, it's so much more accurate than just doing the, the yeah. monthly one yeah. to satisfy, you know, forecasts and the sure. bank and stuff. And um, obviously, and you just built a, a, an Excel day. spreadsheet model. Then that you've done that. It's yeah. This Excel spreadsheet is is like huge, and it's probably yeah. really complicated. Sure. And it all models against what we because we buy lots of products, so it models what we buy. And obviously what we sell and how we collect cash and, and yeah. everything. It's a great discipline. Every business should have daily cash flow. You yeah. don't have to be. So that's one of the great lessons uh, about, about adversity. You learn from it and you Certainly should do. never forget. Don't, you know, yeah, cash is king, but look after it and cherish it and and analyze it going forward as far forward as you can. Um, it's just a good business discipline. So, but at that time, I thought we really need to change. We've improved. We've improved quality. Customer satisfaction's pretty good, but it's a time for change now. So we said, right, from this day onwards, customers and people come first. They come before profit, and shareholders come last. That's the way that we're going to operate from this day onwards, and that's what we started to do. And um, we 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 actually sacked uh, quite a lot of customers. Uh, we told uh, three of our top customers that we didn't want to deal with them anymore because uh, because we had a minimum margin that we wanted to work with, and they didn't fit in that. We didn't think they'd probably fit into that in the future. We, we actually got rid of a lot of customers that would cause us too many problems at the lower end that, that you know, were messing us about, that weren't paying and mm-hmm. and doing all those stupid tactical things to avoid paying. So they just caused so much trouble. So we, so we got rid of them. And that was our way forward then. So that meant that uh, more people had to leave us. We had to bring different people in with a different mindset. I don't suppose the shareholders were like over the moon about it, um, but that's what we did, and and part of it was to conserve cash because cash was difficult because of the mistakes and because uh, the banks were in crisis mode. Okay, so um, so that's what we did, and it started to work actually. <laughs> and so, just a summary: you started to monitor cash daily. Uh, and, and forecast cash daily. You presumably got all over your credit control and then you basically sacked customers that either were not paying you on time or you couldn't achieve the margin that you needed and knew that as a business you deserved. Yeah, and that they needed. Yeah. Yeah. Which seems pretty simple, doesn't it? And it's a good way, the, a way to get through um, those periods of recession when things are difficult, and we might be heading into one now, actually, the best way to get through is to conserve cash and look after your margin. And while the herd are are going for more growth because they think that's the best way to survive, try and get your prices up. Do less business. Look after your cash. uh, it's It's the way through. It was brilliant for us really. And it's easier to do it because most of your competitors are doing the opposite. So when others are looking to, you know, to, to sell cheap in order to secure business, was that not a more challenging conversation for your sales teams to be able to justify a higher price point to your customers? Well, I think at that point and um, from then on, uh, because we were putting people and customer first, Customer service and customer satisfaction started to really soar, and uh, we became um, sort of best in market at service. We 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 knew what they wanted. We were affordable, we uh, but not cheap. We we were faster than anyone else, and we really cared about them. So people were happier to pay that extra margin then because of service, because of speed, and uh, okay. When, when, when you can, you'll, you'll always pay, if you can, you'll always pay a bit more premium to get what, you, what it is that you want faster 
with better quality, um, more enduring, with people that are going to be around for a long time. And and in, in recession, people gravitate towards those people they can trust, really. Mm. Because when there's increased level of uncertainty, the one thing they want to, the, they need some certainty, yeah. and that comes from people that they can trust. Yeah. And you you sort of grew and developed um, a culture of trust internally amongst all your colleagues. Yeah, that became our second value, actually. So focused on the customers first. Caring delivering trust became... Yeah, caring and trust, okay. That's what we, that's what we benchmarked against with all our people. And that's what we started to recruit against. And that's what we recruit for now. And we always recruit values first. Yeah. In fact, the last thing that we look at in our extensive interview process is, can they actually do the job or not? Really? Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So um, back to your story then, you were at a period of um, recession, you focused on cash. Um, when did you start to move over to the recognition that there was a different way of sort of structuring the business and moving to partial comp- uh, employee ownership of the business? We were start a few years ago. We started to uh, do really well. It started to translate into. You sound surprised. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it started to those disciplines that we had in in those uh, difficult times um, started to translate to uh, higher gross margin. We were keep we kept things tight anyway from an overhead point of view. Um, and one of our big metrics was uh, sales per employee, and that's still one of them now, actually. Um, our customer service um, satisfaction score start, started to rise, but looking after people and customer before profit started to lead to much more profit. Not a little more, a lot more. And for a small business employing, at the time, 50-odd people, and one that had gone from net assets of like 80 grand in its first nearly 60 years, we were starting to break a £1 million profit barrier. Great. And, and for 50 people, that's some going, really. And we started to think about, um, we, we thought about two things, really. We, we, we were excited and we wondered what we should do next. And maybe businesses go through that and, and maybe they get excited and think, what should we do? Should we should we grow more? Should we acquire? Should we merge? Should we do something really exciting? Um, and I suppose we thought for a minute, the leadership team, uh, not the shareholders, and, and we thought, well, whatever we do, it's actually going to benefit the shareholders (laughs) and the leadership team and and everyone that works here had done all the work, applied all the skill and talent and effort and brought it all together. just seemed a bit unfair. And actually, we'd been valued at £10 million, which is like a huge figure. So, uh, So we were worried about that, really. And the and the other thing um, that we were conscious of was because uh, we always look at risk. I, I think that we're risk averse, really. Uh, we always look at risk, and we thought, "What's the biggest risk to the business?" And actually, it was that the company could be sold. Right. So, um, and often when when a leadership team looks at that. It thinks uh, it gets excited and thinks MBO. Let's mm. make let's make a few million quid, mm. and we'll uh, buy the company, and we'll get private equity involved, and we'll all be millionaires. Um, but I offered to the leadership team uh, this thing that we'd started to know more about called employee ownership, and all the leadership team said, uh, "Yeah, well, let's do that then." And not one of them mentioned or asked about uh, management buyout and private equity. Uh, they just thought that that was like the way forward. It would solve our problems. It would mean that uh, if successful, we could never be sold. We all wanted to build something 
enduring, something that would last for such a long time and for the benefit of everyone, not just a handful of people. And um, so um, the leadership team said, yeah. Um, so we thought, um, let's make shareholders an offer. And uh, and they accepted, so that, so that okay. was good. Uh, let's try and persuade our bank to lend us, you know, some money to pay them off quick. Okay. And that's quite difficult to ask a bank for money to give to shareholders. It they is, don't yeah, usually sure. do that no, sort of thing. No. Uh, but they knew, because we'd built up so much trust with a bank, and they'd come to trust us a lot, actually. And probably admire some of the things that we we do um they said yeah and um so we did that was like so just on that point though so you uh, I, i'm presuming that you went out of your way to build a relationship with your bank it, i suppose that's the way we're big on relationships and we're big on trust and we want to be trusted and that's what we're all about we and we don't like um people that, that we can't build relationships with where there's no trust and we definitely can't deal with people who don't care about us. Yeah, for sure. And we were lucky that we found a bank, actually HSBC, mm -hmm. um, that that we'd got to know and uh, that we that we came to trust each other and um that's how it all worked that's how it all panned out. They were sort of used to our culture by then that we would talk about things that we were proud of. Um things like people, customer satisfaction, caring about workers around the world. We would in bank meetings, that's all we'd talk about. We wouldn't talk about figures and stuff till like the end. And when we do when we ever talk to people like the bank, it's always loads of us. It's not like one or two people in the closed office. Um, we're really engaging, and I think they sort of like that style because it's quite different, really. And, that's, and I suppose, so uh, just over five years ago, we we uh, took a five-year loan out to become employee-owned, actually. Yeah. And they asked for a five-year forecast, and I said, you must be joking. I can't forecast next year, never mind five years' time. I'm just not bright enough, you know. And who is, actually? So we put a forecast through. And um, year by year, uh, sales, mar um, margins, pre-tax, post-tax, retained profits, everything. And we looked at it recently. And um, actually, uh, we'd beaten every forecast on every metric for each of those five years. Fantastic. And maybe that's because I always forecast low. Okay. But that's what you should do with the bank because banks hate surprises, actually. They hate being shocked. So um, I would never give a bank a forecast that I didn't think we could achieve, ever. Yeah. I think in periods of uncertainty, you need to look for the certainty that is in your business and around you. And you also need to look for the opportunities where you can possibly pivot, how you can minimize risk and downside, and actually how importantly you can survive and thrive through testing and challenging times. I help people do this all day long in terms of my business. And indeed, in next month, I've got a, a book coming out in, with that very title, Survive and Thrive full of case studies and stories of how I've done that. But if you're feeling that actually you could do a dose of what do I need to do now to survive and then thrive, then do get in touch and I'll be able to help get you and your business to navigate the best course through potentially stormy waters to get to the point of uh, thriving and making a difference to the customer base and potential future customers that you serve. Drop me an email, gavin at gavinpreston.com. We'll jump on a call and find out how I can help you. So that's gavin at gavinpreston.com. So you built trust. You got obviously funding from them to in order to be able to um, buy a percentage of the ownership of the of the company from mm. the original shareholders. Yeah. And now that's for now. So is it, did you say sixty percent? You explained yeah. it before sixty yeah. percent employee owned now. We're majority uh, employee owned, and which is brilliant. And the advantage and these rules changed in two thousand fourteen with 
with, with the government at the time to to promote the benefits of employee ownership. So um, shareholders who are not employees get their uh, sale uh, proceeds tax-free. Okay. So that's great for um, like family shareholders and shareholders in the SMEs. That's really good for them. Yeah, of course. And um, so, so that sort of made it easier as as well. Um, one of the great benefits about um, the new rules of employee ownership is that you can pay um, employees um, profit share tax free up to three thousand six hundred pounds. So that's really rewarding uh, for those as well. And I guess that employee ownership is, we'd been applying the culture for years, really, where we would care for each other, where where we would put the needs of, of the lower paid first, which is the opposite of a lot of SMEs and family businesses. So in our business, we think about the lower paid first, and if there's no money left for the higher pay, then they don't get anything. That's the way that we approach annual uh, pay increases. It's the, the way that we approach every benefit, actually. We always start with the lower paid first. And it's not only you committing to paying um, the the living wage, you're also helping them with full fully contributed pension, yeah. um, extra sort of holidays, Mm. Um, so individuals can talk a little, bit, a little bit about your thinking around holidays. And you told me a story earlier on about people voting for <laughs> extra money versus yeah. extra holiday time. I think that um, all commercial companies should reward their people with elements of profit share. It, it just seems the right thing to do, really, because everyone's contributed Yes. Really, so um, that that was um, really important to us, I guess. But a few years ago, uh, before we started making um, larger profits, we said that we wanted to share some profits. But we gave everyone the option individually, not collectively. Do you want uh, profit share? Do you want extra holidays, or do you want a mixture? And to my surprise, really. Most people said that they wanted extra holidays. And I was a bit shocked, really. And when I looked further, the lower paid, the ones who can least afford it, wanted more time off to spend with their families. Really? I was absolutely shocked, really. Yeah. So um, I guess that was really interesting. But what we do now, we, we, we share profits uh, fairly amongst everyone. Our lowest profit share uh, annually for the last five years has been £2,000 per employee. Right. More than half of our people are traditionally lower paid. Yes. We pay 80% at Christmas because that's when most families, most families need it more. And uh, that's really rewarding. But everyone knows that it we're not just about profit and it's not to maximise profit share. And one of the big things that we reward on is customer satisfaction. And you, you, you measure that with the NPS, Net Profit Motor Score? We do, yeah. And uh, maybe this might be a bit tight, but if we achieve uh, a Net Promoter Score of, let's say, plus 70, okay, which is almost world-class, I think. Sure, it then is. We yeah, give, yeah. Then we give like extra days to everyone in extra the business. Extra holiday days, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's two parts to this really. So for um, I think one year we paid two, we gave two extra days, but every other year we've given three extra days to everyone in the business, and we all get the same. That's really rewarding. People really look forward to when we're able to announce what that is. But everyone uh, in the business has access to customer satisfaction uh, results anyway, and the comments that customers make. So I think that's really good. But everyone in the business knows that this year's customer satisfaction is next year's profit. So it's no good cutting so, corners yeah. and maximizing profit 
Because it will be there the following year. And they're going to benefit personally both in their profit share and also Mm. extra time off. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it just seems the right thing to do, really. Seems obvious the way you say it. Everyone's really engaged and so excited when we start releasing the weekly customer satisfaction scores, which on our big surveys is at the end of our season. And everyone's really excited about it. And uh, it's great to see the comments, really. So uh, we ask customers uh, things like, what do you think about our delivery, quality, uh, our customer care? What do you think about us overall? What comments do you have to make? Uh, What would you change about the business? Those sort of things. We get like 30, 35% take up from customers because we've got about six, 700 customers. So we think that that's pretty good. Uh, we don't incentivize them to uh, complete that. Um, but they all know that that's, uh, that's how we monitor. And we've been doing that for 17 years. The same questions in the same way we've benchmarked for 17 years. And, um, it's great for our confidence as well, because one of the questions is, what would you change about the business? And, you know, some people might leave it blank or people put all sorts, but every year the most popular answer is, please don't change anything. We love what you do. We love the way you do it. Just don't change anything. Please don't. And I think that's great, really. In terms of the culture and what you've, you've done there, do you, so as a result of, uh, all the energy and the attention being put on uh, as, a, as, a, as a core driver being on net promoter score, employees benefit both in terms of money and in terms of time. What stories have you got around uh, members of your, you know, your colleagues um, going the extra mile or really looking after the customer as a result of you focusing on the, the customer and then the employee? I don't know if I've got any actually because is what what we do here just seems so natural, but I think it might be something that might be admired elsewhere as as like a one off. So uh, what if we let a cus- we're really good at we're, well we're pretty good at making mistakes actually because we seem to make a lot all of us and I seem to make more than others. But what we're brilliant at is rectifying them. And customers really appreciate that. And what we say here, and nobody has to ask anyone else, it's just what we all do. The customer comes first. So whatever it takes, you've got to satisfy the customer. Right. So that might be delivering stuff. It might be flying stuff in. It might be driving through the night to do stuff. It could be, it could be there's so many examples, but it's just what we do. It, it's not like champion because it's, 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 just seems natural to us that you would want to do everything possible to look after the customer. So I know you have high retention of uh, of employees. Mm. So uh, you shared with me earlier on that in six years, only six people have resigned, Yeah, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, presumably also you have high retention of customers as well. I don't want to tempt fate actually, but... <laughs> The the customers that leave us are the ones that we've probably asked to leave, okay. which is the same as our people, actually. And the customers that we ask to leave or the ones that leave us are the ones it's always to do with finance. I suppose going back to those difficult times, uh, we we give great service. We really look after customers. and uh, But we expect in return that they might care about us. Really, and one of the ways that um, a customer would care about you is to pay you on time. So we'd set up rules, and that's not unreal. It's not unreasonable, is it? <laughs> not to me, no. <laughs> you get paid on time. So, so for us, it's probably harder to get credit. Okay, we're tighter at uh, collecting, and our collection times are shorter than anyone else's. So we make it a bit more difficult, really. And that goes back to those times of where we were finding, you know, daily cash difficult. And we've just applied, we just kept those rules. So where we get uh, scored down on customer satisfaction is if we've reduced the customer's credit or we've removed the credit or we've made it 
uh, too difficult for them to so, work with us. So by way of explanation as to, to the aspects of, uh, of your market, the, the main uh, part of your business is school wear. Uh, and then the secondary part is corporate wear. Now, with with the school wear, you're selling to um, small retail establishments that are serving local schools. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we don't uh, supply parents directly or schools directly. We like to serve the retailers, which is mainly small independent retailers. They're our customers and we don't want to compete with them. We want to help them all we can. So So back to another point you made a little bit earlier that one of the uh, points of pride in in NPS surveys when asked what would you change and people say nothing. In a a world of... uh, constant change in technological advancement, et cetera, and, and, and pace of evolution of the way that business is done and conducted. Um, how do you guard against complacency about when people say, don't change anything, don't change anything, so that you still stay relevant to your customers? Um, our motto. So we've got two values, trust and care. We like sure. to keep things simple. Yeah. We've got one motto, and that's be better. We've always got to be better. All of us, in everything that we do, in thinking about the future, we have to be better. No one's allowed to be complacent at all. It's not in our makeup. We just don't behave like that. We've got this mentality, and it comes from me probably. Um, I don't think that I'm good enough. I think I've got uh, imposter syndrome anyway. And I think lots of people here have the, the same qualities. We don't actually think that we're anywhere near good enough. And and that leads us to want to be nearer to where we'd like to be. So I think it's to do with that. I think we don't think that we're as good as people think that we are. So we want to strive to be better. And we'll probably never stop. It's It's not... What we are. I was in a um, a conversation recently with a with a peer of mine that does similar work to what I do, and we were just talking about um, what are the, the the areas that business owners need most help with in order, or what, what holds them back from growing. And it was one of those moments where just intuitively, um, I just shared twenty five years worth of experience, and I was given the challenge in the phone conversation around if there were three things that you could that you end up helping businesses with because and that un, un, sort of releases the, the the things that are holding them back what are those three things and i said cash confident in other words so many business owners are not confident about their future cash and the future cash flows yeah. so you know, I'm working on people on doing the very thing that you've already explained around cash forecasting. The second thing I cited, this is really uncanny that, <laughs> that this conversation, Donald, is just replaying back. The second thing I said uh, was imposter syndrome, was saying so many uh, founders and owners and leaders of businesses are looking around behind them and saying, oh, one day I'm going to get found out. And, and that self-doubt is holding back the growth of their business and of the journey of the enjoyability, uh, enjoyment of their business. And the third thing, which um, you've, whilst not using the word directly, you've, you've spent the whole time talking about is team. And it's about creating a team where people want to work there, want to deliver and perform. And, and you know, at the heart of team is, is, is trust and care. Mm. And you, you, the, it's really fantastic for me to listen to this story because... You know, I've, I've, I've had the privilege of it being shown around your, your whole operation here. Um, people are smiling, they look engaged, uh, they look pleased to be here, they're incredibly friendly and helpful, and that's not normal. Well, it's, well, it's normal here, actually. One of the things that I like uh, is um, it's... Ha- Lots of people wouldn't want to work here anyway because uh, lots of people uh, and too many people are out for themselves and want things that we don't really offer, you know, like uh, loads of money. And uh, those things that people used to aspire to, I think, you know, like career advancement and progression and all these sort of things. And... uh, for us, happiness at work is such an important metric. 
and we measure uh, colleague happiness every month on uh, by survey, we're really conscious that um, that's the one thing that will keep us going, really. In adversity, if we're happy, uh, then we'll be okay, really. Um, one of the things you've done around employee happiness is you put energy and effort into the mental health of your employees, your colleagues. Yeah. Um, some of it is a bit is a bit raw, actually, but one of our colleagues found out that they didn't have long to live. And um, that, that was really difficult. And... Um, they told me that they were uh, really unhappy, um, but they expressed that in a way which I shouldn't really do on like a, a podcast thing. I've been mean, really okay, but <laughs> so I said, "Well, uh, what what is it then? What what's bothering you about the people?" So they said, "Everyone around me keeps crying whenever I talk to them. They keep crying, and it's really doing my head in, and I'm finding it hard to, you know." I'm the one that's dying, <laughs> but it's everyone else that's crying. And I think we, what became obvious is, is that they needed help with like resilience, really. But so did everybody else, and if yeah. it, it affected us all, really. So we brought someone in that runs uh, small group sessions with everyone about resilience, yeah. and then and then followed that up with uh, confidence. And I think that was uh, really important at the time. And then really recently, um, we've been doing stuff on mental health and we've managed to uh, run sessions um, with, an external with external trainers where every single person in the company has done a two-day course on, on mental health. Great. And I think that's really important. And... I don't know anyone who hasn't suffered through mental health. And they talk about one in four people at work. And I think, where's that come from? It's like everyone, it's not one in four. And uh, I see initiatives like mental health first aid. And I think, yeah, well, that's all right. But if you're suffering and you want help, you want to go to someone that you can trust. Yes. And that isn't the one or two people that have got that, the badge on. It should be like anyone that you can trust at work. Yeah. So, and then who can signpost? But if you've if you've all learned together, then you're learning about signposting as well, and you know who you can talk to, you can confide with, and everything. So I, so I'd like to think that we've got like maybe sixty <laughs> mental health first aiders that have all shared such personal stuff together with colleagues. And people have cried together and laughed together and learned together. And um, I think that's really helpful. So um, given the fact that everybody's, you know, been through that mental health kind of workshops, they're bonded effectively, being brought together by laughing together, crying together, they've built on trust and care. Do you, you see that showing up then in terms of day-to-day, -day, how, how everybody works with each other and how productive they are? It's like people talk about it as if it's like a family. And I say, yeah, well, it might be, because it's definitely dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, showing um, a family that isn't, yeah. yeah. But people uh, do care about each other and do celebrate, like, successes and help people that that are, that are in need and i think that's uh it's great if you get, there's no like rivals there's no blame culture we all make mistakes and um as long as that we learn from them and don't make too many then then we'll be all right really now there may well be some cynics uh listening that think oh this all sounds very nice very soft and cuddly but do you get a return on investment do you do you how does it uh, impact on the bottom line of the business and the metrics of the business by putting customers first and then putting colleagues second? Uh, in in two or three decades, we've uh, and the business has been trading for eighty five years. 
In the last two or three decades, we've increased net assets by 125 times. Wow. <laughs> Say that again. From £80,000 to like £7 million. Wow. Which I think is pretty good. I think it's very impressive, yeah. Um, I know that I don't really talk about sales growth much, but obviously uh, it's increased uh-huh. and the margins have increased. Um, our productivity is really high here because everyone mucks in to get the job done. We don't have isolated departments. We have multi-skilled people, really talented, that will put their hands to anything that anyone wants. And so I think that helps as well. Um, so yeah, uh, sales are strong, margins are better. Um, but being employee-owned, and we want to build an enduring business, our retain profits higher as well. We share profits, and we, and we share um, like up to thirty percent of our profits, uh, a pre-tax profits. But what that means is, um, we retain half of our pre-tax profits every year, and we make good profits. And that's for the good of the business to invest and grow in the future. It's to build in uh, stuff for the rainy day because things are up will get more difficult one day. We're always planning for those difficult times. So we've got cash in reserve. We've got a bank that will look after us better than most. Uh, because of the trust and and uh, everything that we've built up, so and um, that's all about. You can't build an enduring business if you're just planning from month to month, from year to year. So it's all part of a long term strategy, if you like. Not that I talk about that word very often. But it's it's all part of our plan to build a great business for the long term whose people love working here that are all proud to work here whose customers uh, really appreciate it whose suppliers and the workers in the suppliers uh, love working with our brand um, because we really care for them and I think that the, the way that our business is run for, for our people in the, the, the differential between the highest paid and lowest paid is really low, like six times. Okay. And, and constitutionally can't be ever more than 10 times. Um, what, that, what that's creating is, is a culture that is really well suited to future generations. In fact, Generation Alpha will want to work for people of, for companies of a similar culture where you're part of uh, being a force for good, a, a mission, something to be proud of not individual achievement, but being part of something really strong and doing good around the world is something that we're all really proud of here. And being diverse and being inclusive um, and sharing is part of what future generations will are looking for in employers they won't do the old career path stuff that everyone strived for, you know, in previous generations. They're not interested in that sort of stuff. They'll want to work three days a week, not six. They'll want to be comfortable. They might not be homeowners. They might not be on, you know, huge salaries, but happiness and good mental health and physical health are far more important to future generations than they ever will. And by accident, I think that we're, we'll be aligned to that new generation. 
So we're as far away from the 1960s, 1970s, the trip on life on Mars that I talked about <laughs> earlier. Yeah. We're so far removed from that. It's as if we're doing the opposite of all the bad stuff that we've ever seen and what I've ever seen in business. And I think that that will help us to be enduring. We're not doing it to attract those people. Some of them have just been born. Mm. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And it just happens that we think that people, more and more people will want to work for organizations like ours. And being proud is one of the best things about uh, working here, I think, for everyone. Donald, um, you're a you're a leading light, a beacon. You know, it's a, it's a privilege to be listening to your story, but experiencing firsthand the culture you've created. Uh, you're humble with it, and uh, you are doing the things that evidently are ticking some of the boxes that others at times may have thought were mutually exclusive, like. Uh, delighted customers with a high NPS, delighted colleagues and a healthy balance sheet. So it's been a real privilege. People want to find out more about Ronson's Knitwear. How do they do that? Um, well, probably uh, just have a look on Google and uh, get the details. And if you want to get in touch with any of us. Uh, so it's Rollinson's Knitwear based in Stockport uh, near Manchester in the UK. Um, and a fantastic story of real turnaround over uh, over the years from a lot of things that were going wrong with only, as you say, uh, net assets of did you say eighty thousand uh, and to to you know seven million now, which is a phenomenal turnaround. Donald, thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Hey, Gavin here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation I just had with Donald. After I pressed uh, end at the end of that episode, he said, oh, I've just not spoken enough about the things that we have done as a, a B Corp, a benefit corp, and business as a force for good, and the programs of uh, giving back and charity stuff that we've done in our supply chain in parts of the world. So actually listen out for Friday's Hey Presto, because uh, there'll be another 10 minutes with uh, Donald Moore for him, you to listen to the things that they're doing to support the people in the supply chain. And it's just, again, a, a moving and really inspirational story. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Business Mastermind podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that more people like you can get their business back on their own terms. Enjoy more success and create more impact. <laughs>